The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. Here are your headlines. Warning signs. The Dow plunges 800 points, suffering its worst day of the year. As the U.S. two-year, 10-year yield curve inverts, putting investors on recession watch. President Trump slams the Fed, blaming Jerome Powell for growing fears about a U.S. slowdown, while the 30-year Treasury yield falls to a new record low. Stocks across Asia join the sell-off as Trump links a trade deal with China to protests in Hong Kong and suggests a personal meeting with Xi Jinping over the political crisis. Recession fears royal Asian bond markets as the yield on Japan's 10-year JGB falls to its lowest level in three years. Here we are all watching for financial crisis indicators on the bond markets and a huge sell-off rocking Wall Street yesterday. You can see it on the percentage levels that flashed up for the Dow, the S&P and Nasdaq and the Dow clocking up its worst trading session for 2019. The size of the fall, 800 points in session, taking the Dow right back to 25,479. A two-month low is where the Dow and S&P 500 have closed up shop. So you can see investors very much taking stock of what they've got on markets. Uh, in the backdrop, but bonds very much in focus for, for many investors. As we saw the technical bre levels breach, the 200-day moving average taken out on the Dow. One of the biggest movers was Boeing in session. So do we have a tale of woe being forecast now by the bond markets. Well, the panic that came yesterday was really sparked by this two-year, ten-year yield uh, yield curve inversion that we saw. This is what this is what experts across the board were watching. It's an extremely reliable indicator of economic recession, and we did see it finally invert briefly. Briefly, this is important. It didn't close in inversion territory, but it did touch this, and this is what caused widespread panic here. And the last time that it did this was in 2007. The last time it closed in inversion territory was December two. 2005, which of course was two years before we saw a recession kick in. So this really drove widespread fears for investors at the, the two-year tenure that we'd been very, very closely eyeing. But the whole Treasury uh, Treasury yield curve was in focus yesterday. Indeed. And don't forget, 1996, the Fed released a very key paper talking about the signaling function of the yield curve, inverted yield curve, saying, is it flashing something up that effectively the rest of the market is not watching? So investors have paid a very close attention to the three-month T-bill, the two-year. And don't forget when we had the height of the volatility last year, the end of last year, it was the inversion of the three-month T-bill and the tenure that investors were watching. Now, if you look at the spreads across the board, you can see how flat the two and the tenure are, that, that 1.55 level in the middle, very close to the five-year and the long end of the boards. If you take a look at the 30-year yield below 2% for the first time ever, 1.97%. So we're, we've got expectations now around future interest rates starting to fall. The banking sector, as a result of that, one of the real casualties in a session 
pulling back uh, the extent of the pullbacks, uh, very similar to what you had in some of the other key markets, uh, down about 4% communication, tech, uh, some of the other materials, also trading very weak in session. But for this sector, back in correction territory with the extent of these losses, just drilling down to the individual names, 4% coming off many of them from Wells Fargo to JP Morgan, the steepest losses on Citigroup down five and a quarter plus percent. Uh, the safe havens by comparison, where did the money flow to? Well, gold, very clear trade for a lot of investors. Again, marching high this morning, 15.20 on the charts as investors seek the safety of bullion. And as we start to question global yields, many of them in negative territory, we start to compare that a relative trade to gold, which has no yield. No yield better than negative yield. And that uh, has put gold very much in focus. US dollar versus the Japanese yen, Making some territory this morning, the level 105.91, but uh, the Japanese yen very much a safe haven trade in this type of market. Dollar also climbing to the Swissy this morning, and you can see 97.34 on that board. I think to bring it back to fundamentals, a lot of the recession concern came on the back of that weak data we had from China overnight in the session before last. And we also had German GDP come in in Q2 showing a contraction. So a lot of concerns around global growth. And WTI uh, took a hit yesterday uh, right alongside Brent, both of those plunging about uh, 3% yesterday. Oil still higher on the week, but uh, a lot of concerns really mounting around the demand picture for oil. And that came through uh, loud and clear yesterday. Well, let's take a look at the latest trade over in Asia, where the uh, the turmoil on Wall Street did filter through in large part to Asian markets, but the moves are fairly contained in mainland China. Interestingly, Shanghai Composite down about 0.6%. Uh, the Australian index getting hit harder, about 2.8% lower, uh, and the Nikkei 225 down about 1.4%. So overall, Asian markets following Wall Street into the red. Let's take a look at uh, JGBs. As you heard there in the headlines, we saw the 10-year JGB fall to its lowest level in three years, trading at negative 0.23%. So uh, the uh, the global yield plunge that we've seen uh, take place is not escaping the Asian markets, not escaping Japan this morning. Karen. Thank you for that, Juliana. President Trump resumed his attacks on the Fed in the wake of the inversion-linked market turmoil. He tweeted, Chair Jerome Powell was, quote, clueless and that the Fed is holding us back. Ralph Poisset joins us. He's a chief head of rates, a global head of rates research, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. Ralph, looking through some of your notes, you have been concerned about the markets for a while. The markets are exhausted. Uh, one of the lines you've had, tantrum risks are rising. When you witness uh, some of the activity that we've had on the street yesterday, what do you make of what the bond markets are flashing up? The bond markets are clearly telling us that they don't expect the uncertainty that is hitting the global economy to be lifted anytime soon. And from that perspective, the path of least resistance is towards more hedges and therefore lower rates. And investors are telling us that they're not, they're not long 10-year rates in, in Germany for sure and arguably even in the US because they see a lot of value there. It's because they're using it to protect their other assets. 10-year um, Treasury notes in our surveys regularly flag as the most popular risk off hedge. On a day like this, it's very easy to jump on the bandwagon and stress how much selling there is out there, all the market fear. But if we go right back to 1996 and review some of the statements from the Fed when they were looking at the relevance of an inverted yield curve, they were pointing out it was one measure. It was one measure to perhaps look at the rest of the economic indicators and say, is there something the market is missing, which is why many now pay attention to the inverted yield curve. Is it different this time because of all the cheap money we've had, the extraordinary territory we've found ourselves in on the back of uh, the, the stimulus that has been thrown at the system? Yeah, 
You're absolutely right. The, the yield curve is not the single best indicator out there. Otherwise, strategists like myself would be out of a job. <laughs> um, I'm not saying I'm any better, but you know, we're trying to add some value. The, the point about the curve is that, first of all, the, the lags with which it predicts a recession can be extremely long. Right? So just because the yield curve has inverted yesterday doesn't mean that we're in recession tomorrow. Number two, you, as you said, you can question whether or not the information content of the curve today is the same as it was previously because you know, of the overhang of QE, the amount of liquidity that's flushing around the system, et cetera, et cetera. But more importantly, what is unique about this yield curve inversion, which arguably raises a lot of questions, is the fact that it's happening in an easing cycle. Normally, the curve only ever inverts when the Fed is hiking rates or has just finished hiking rates. Yeah, the Fed just finished hiking rates, but we've also seen the first rate cut and the market is pricing in lots more to come. For the curve to invert in that environment is very, very unusual. And that tells you that what the market is having to do, and, and I've been saying, making this point for some time, so um, forgive me for repeating it, we are being forced to put a line through an extremely wide probability distribution. The US economy is doing okay. Right. Growth is still holding up. Retail sales today should be decent. Um, but there is a scenario where yields go all the way to zero because the trade war keeps escalating and the Fed keeps accommodating. How do you put a line through that extreme bimodal outcome? One scenario where the world is okay and one where it's really not. Do you think the U.S. yield curve represents the underlying fundamentals of the U.S. economy, or is the, the move that we're seeing actually representative of what we're seeing outside of the U.S. economy? Given the, the, the big inversion yesterday, we all saw came on the back of that weak China data and the confirmation that Germany has contracted in Q2. It's a mix of all of these things. Um, what I would point out is that you know, even though people tend to look at the U.S. as the high yielder in my space of, of government bonds at the moment, um, that's only for a minority of investors, given that the majority of investors actually look through, at the world through the lens of an FX hedge. Bonds from that perspective are actually cheaper than treasuries, right? So if you were an FX hedge investor and you bought 10-year notes today on a rolling FX hedge, you would actually lose 30 basis points running versus what bonds give you. That's how expensive the FX hedge is these days. So, um, you know, yes, treasuries are clearly driven by that global growth fear. Um, but in terms of flow of funds, um, I think what is driving the uh, outperformance of US rates is just the virtue of the fact that it's the one market where you can see capital gains. I want to get to some of the comments about what type of market and what type of economy we're now looking at. And one of the fears is that if a recession is looming, stocks could fall by 20%. And that was the strongest case for, for why you would be taking stock of some of your equity exposures right now. However, if we just go back over the US economy, we had a growth rate recently of 2.1% in the second quarter. Sure, it is down from a much stronger rate of 3.1% in the first quarter, but a rate of just over 2% gives you a lot of territory between growth and recession. If you consider where we've got the unemployment rate, also another key measure, when many go back over the inverted yield curve, they say, well, what is the unemployment rate? The unemployment rate is 3.7%. We still have growth in the jobs market. So aren't we a long way 
from a recession at this point? We are. I mean, if you want a coincident indicator of the recession, something that we've been pointing out a couple of years back now, I think, is the, the fact that actually payrolls is a, is a very decent indicator when the, you know, whatever, I can't remember what it was, three months, six months moving average of payrolls moves into negative territory, you're pretty sure you're in recession. We're a long way away from that. Um, but markets are forward-looking, and that is you know, one distinction we need to make. The other point I would make about the equity market is that I think one of the reasons why we've actually seen such a resilient equity market until now is the fact that actually what people have been buying are all the bond proxies within equities. So the uptrade in equities was a big pain trade for a lot of investors because they weren't actually positioned correctly within their equity allocations. And their big overweight in the bond proxies arguably is what is, what is protecting them now to some extent. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. Uh, pick up this conversation in just a moment. Uh, meanwhile, President Trump has publicly linked a Chinese trade deal with the unrest in Hong Kong. In a series of tweets, the U.S. leader suggested a personal meeting with President Xi and said China wanted to make a deal, but, quote, let them work humanely with Hong Kong first. Now, Eunice Yoon joins us live uh, with more from Beijing. Eunice, uh, really interesting to see President Trump for the first time publicly linking Hong Kong to the trade war in a direct way. How is Beijing likely to respond to this? Probably not very well. Uh, so far, officially and, and unofficially, there hasn't been any response specifically to President Trump's tweets. But the state media has been weighing in on what they see more broadly as U.S. interference. So, for example, the authoritative and very important uh, state paper, The People's Daily, uh, just posted a commentary that reads, to heck with the U.S.'s concern on Hong Kong. And they even included an exclamation point in the headline, which is kind of unusual. Also, so a China Daily editorial today uh, wrote, U.S. politicians' tweets expose their ugly hypocrisy. So this is in line with what Beijing has been doing consistently, and that is repeating that the rest of the world should mind its own business when it comes to the situation in Hong Kong, because from China's perspective, they believe that the Hong Kong protests are purely a domestic affair. So it's unclear at this point what presidents or how President Trump's tweets are going to uh, potentially influence the trade discussions. There had been a lot, uh, quite a big concern here in China that uh, President Trump uh, would somehow use the situation in Hong Kong as a pressure point in the negotiations uh, for a trade deal. Now, in terms of the reaction about uh, President Trump's tariff reprieve. What was interesting is that even now, even though it's been over 24 hours, the Chinese haven't officially responded to uh, what uh, President Trump has seen as relief for China. And um, instead, it, state media has been uh, reporting on it minimally. And the Xinhua News Agency, uh, which is a state news agency, said China lodged its opposition to the tariffs in the phone call uh, that will kick in on September 1st. But the fact that the reporting here has been so minimal uh, really does suggest that China sees this move as uh, not particularly meaningful in this discussion. All right, uh, Eunice, thank you very much for, uh, for giving us the latest uh, really interesting developments, to say the least. Uh, well, let's take a look at uh, European opening calls and see how we're poised to, uh, to start the day here in Europe after the volatility that we saw yesterday. Uh, hopefully we can uh, bring those up for you there. We're looking at a, a fairly muted start, uh, the DAX and the FTSE just, uh, just off the flat line at the open. Meantime, just a reminder, if you can't get enough of Sportbox, be sure to tune in for our very own podcast. 
Head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to have a listen and download today's episode. For our listeners out there, stick around for some more. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West, CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back to Squawk Box. I want to give you a look at U.S. tech stocks, which were part of the, the big sell-off that we saw yesterday. Equity markets really tanked after the 10-year, two-year inverted. That was a key part of the Treasury yield curve that investors had been watching. And as you can see there on your screens, U.S. tech uh, down uh, to the tune of about 6.4% when we look at Tesla, but across the board, losses accumulating for the U.S. tech space. Let's take a look at semis as well, which were also a big part of the sell-off there. As you can see, uh, more than uh, more than 2% across the board for those key stocks. In corporate news, WeWork revealed a first-half net loss of $900 million in its IPO prospectus while posting revenue of $1.54 billion. The property group also disclosed plans to raise up to $6 billion in debt alongside its public offering. The workspace rental company was valued at $47 billion following its most recent fundraising round, WeWork will be the latest unicorn to go public this year, following the likes of Uber, Lyft and Pinterest. Elsewhere in the tech space, Tencent shares are trading lower after the Chinese tech giant warned of a slowdown in online advertising revenues in a mixed set of second quarter results. Net profit jumped 35 percent, beating estimates, but revenue missed expectations. Tencent cited a slowing Chinese economy and trade tensions as factors weighing down future advertising revenue growth. Alibaba, meanwhile, reports first quarter results later today, with analysts expecting slower revenue growth from the e-commerce giant. The results will also give an insight into the strength of the Chinese consumer amid an economic slowdown and increased trade tensions. Now, Elizabeth Schultz, our tech correspondent, joins us around the desk. Give us a little bit more detail. What should we be looking out for for Alibaba's results today? So some investors have seen Alibaba's stock as a bit of a proxy of this trade war going on between the U.S. and China. So it has taken a hit in recent months as we've seen these tensions escalate. So, of course, looking at general sentiment of the Chinese consumer as one of the key factors in this report, you know, Alibaba captures about 55 percent of the retail e-commerce market in China. So no small player there. But it's important to look at that revenue number on the top line, expected to be about $15.9 billion. That's 38% growth year on year, but it is a slowdown from previous quarters. Part of that is just the sheer size of this company. A couple of other key factors to watch, margin trends. Alibaba has been making some big investments in this new retail area, which includes things like food delivery. It's also made investments in logistics. Of course, we're also looking at cloud growth. This has been a big driver in Alibaba in recent quarters. RBC saying this represents a potentially very large 30 to $40 billion market opportunity for Alibaba. 
currently only represents about 8% of the company's revenues, though. And of course, any reference to those listing plans of a potential second IPO in Hong Kong, we've heard some reports that that might be coming from this company. That would be something to listen for today. Interesting day to be reporting. And backdrop very important for the market reactions uh, to the upside and downside. Elizabeth, thank you for setting the scene. I want to take you back to the two and ten year blood pressure starting to rise uh, as you've had an inversion in the yield curve and investors very much looking for what this means. In the past, you've seen this as a precursor to a financial sell-off, a recession in the markets. You can see have these levels very closely together now. So joining us still around the set is Ralph Preusser, who's Global Head of Rates Research Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, was also the long end of the curve that the markets watched yesterday as the 30-year fell below 2% for the first time. Bonds never lie, that's the saying. Is there anything in the scripting that tells us that the 30-year might be wrong or telling us a lie? No, I mean, so we've been very lucky in the sense that we went long the 30-year on, on Friday in our recommendations. Um, the point that we've been making is that the the curve has been behaving very unusually. As I said before, you wouldn't normally expect it to flatten this much during a cutting cycle. But it's telling you that there's demand out there that we wouldn't have necessarily have expected to see at this stage. And, and specifically, if you look at the move in swap spreads in the long end of the curve, there's a lot of receiving pressure out there. If you look at the stripping activity, there's a lot of demand from you know pension fund LDI investors out there. So clearly there is a, a bit of a you know, last orders fear to this move in rates where investors who haven't done anything about large duration gaps, which are very structural in the insurance industry, the pension industry, fear that they might be missing their last opportunity to lock in some reasonably decent uh, funding ratios. And that, I think, is what's causing the outperformance of the long end of the curve in lots of markets. But there is clearly also a sense within that of central banks either not having enough ammunition, probably the case in Europe, or maybe being a little behind the curve, probably the case in the US. I take your point around duration chasing as investors have been on the hunt for yield, but if we take stock of 30 years from now and what those rate expectations are, could we still be in a situation where central banks are struggling to move too far beyond zero interest rate policy? Let's hope not, right? Uh, Germany's issuing a new 30-year next week. Uh, it'll be a zero-coupon bond issued above par. If you buy it, you will be guaranteed to lose money over the life of that bond. Right. Uh, or, alternatively, you're paying someone to look after your money for the next 30 years, which is what we might be so after. So where do we sign up for it? <laughs> <The> <laughs> Such a positive case. <laughs> can give us an address in Frankfurt for that. Um, the... I, I'm... I struggle with that general doom and gloom, long-run pessimism, though. First of all, in the case of the US, you have, I think, proof that if you stimulate the economy sufficiently quickly and in sufficient size, you do ultimately see a recovery. Right? As you pointed out earlier, the growth numbers that we've had in the US were actually very decent and remain at a round trend for now. Uh, inflation continues to pick up slowly. The labor market has healed tremendously, and wage inflation is also starting to pick up slowly. I think the problem in Europe is that um, it, is, it is much more difficult to emulate that, um, partly because we're, we're starting from a worse position. Um, inflation expectations have already become unanchored, so the ECB needs to do much more heavy lifting to regain the market's confidence that ultimately they will allow that, um, those inflation pressures to return over time. And to be honest, neither negative rates nor QE will really achieve that. What they should just promise is not to raise rates up until inflation is back at target and has been there for a number of years. 
I want to come on to the currency and more directly. We saw President Trump come out with a series of tweets yesterday, some really sending conflicting messages. On the one hand, he was touting the tremendous inflows that the U.S. has seen, that people are seeking safety in the U.S., but on the other hand, really renewing his, his pressure on the Fed chair, saying that, you know, the Fed is what's holding us back. And again, inciting the, the difference between the U.S. monetary policy and other monetary policy around the world. So, I mean, you can't have it both ways. You can't have money pouring into the U.S. and also have a weak dollar. So what does this mean for where the greenback goes next? I'm, I'm not going to try and um, uh, see consistency where there might be none. Um, I think uh, you've, you've point, you put the finger on it uh, directly. The reason why the dollar is strong I don't think has anything to do with monetary policy or certainly not with monetary policy expectations. We're pricing in a lot of rate cuts that alone should have, you know, put some downward pressure on the dollar. The reason the dollar is up is because it's the safe haven asset, right? Uh, within every asset class, in your typical end of cycle rotations, you start seeing an overweighting towards dollar assets, right? Within EM, you go from local currency to hard currency. Within fixed income, you start buying treasuries because they outperform in every rate rally we've ever seen. And within equity markets, you buy the less global equity markets, which are the US. And that, to me, is what strikes me as so ironic about some of the comments that we have from, from the White House. The US is not an export-led economy. Ralph, just Why quickly. does the level of the dollar matter? Just very quickly, 20 seconds left. You've got a call because a lot of investors looking to make money in this type of market. Uh, flatteners in Europe. Just explain that very quickly to us in 10 seconds. It's the path of least resistance. Uh, I think it's very, very difficult for the ECB to get ahead of the curve. And as a result, I think the, the curve will continue to flatten for some time until we see fiscal policy, and that might be a way off. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.